So pop quiz, do you know who James's older brother is? Jesus, yeah. Um, so James is the younger brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, and we're spending the whole entire summer walking through the book of James slowly. And uh, I feel like I got the best passage of all of James. Um, piggybacking off of Bruce, who did a fantastic job last week, right? Um, and talking about doubt and perseverance. And so... Um, really, in here in North America, it's really hard for us to really understand what uh, persecution is like. But the book of James really is uh, is kind of couched in to the church that's been scattered because of persecution. And so uh, it wasn't until being in Vietnam, visiting the persecuted church, that I realized that James is writing about real-life problems. He's writing about real-life situations. And so something that we can relate to as North Americans is maybe not so much persecution, but the tendency to stop something when it doesn't work anymore, right? As a matter of fact, to me, I think this is more more than the intellectual argument against faith. But most people actually don't believe because, in a sense, really just believing in God just doesn't work for them anymore. It's like this practical atheism. And I think that's probably more to, to, to explain why people don't believe than any kind of intellectual argument against faith. When God just doesn't seem to work, some actually stop believing practically overnight. The contradiction in their soul is too much to continue on in faith. So for some of us in Canada, that's the story of your parents. And so you were born into a household of unbelief maybe even hurt and disappointment towards God or the church. For some of us, we were ridiculed in college, so you quit believing. For others, faith died when the close loved one to you died, and so doubt crept in. And that's what's happening to James's audience that he's writing to. They were once winners, vibrant, and now they were facing persecution, looked at as losers, and it seemed that faith no longer was working for them. So last week we read from James 1 through 6, and uh, 1 6, and, uh, and James writes this For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Tossed by the wind. Have you known what it feels like to be tossed back and forth because of doubt? And some of us here this morning, knowing some of your stories, I know that you've been through many, many seasons of doubt. Many seasons of doubt. Some of you guys are barely making it through. But think about this. Just look around, look around in this auditorium real quick and look at all the empty chairs, right? all the chairs that we want to fill. These chairs represent a fragment, a small fragment of our city of people. Five, ten, twenty years ago, maybe they would have sat in a gathering like this. But today, no more. You have friends. Five, ten years ago, they would have been gathering just like this. Today, no more. This is the story of our culture. This is the story of our society. As I look at these chairs, and I want to fill them, but I'm reminded that each one of these chairs represents somebody who either grew up in a household who rejected God or somebody who, because of an event in their life, no longer wants to do with God. God doesn't work anymore. So here's how doubt forms, actually. Our experience differs from what we believe in God. That's what actually seeds the root of doubt. Of doubt. Like what we're experiencing no longer like matches what we believe about God, right? So then God doesn't seem good anymore. 
according to our initial thoughts about him. And so instead of a rational like objection to God, the seed of doubt usually happens because there's a emotional, a moral objection to God. And then doubt usually progresses to unbelief. And doubt itself is not inherently bad. It's not bad to doubt. My wife doubts me all the time. Maybe that's bad. But if you side with it, this is what happens. If you side with doubt, what happens is this, that inevitably you create a need for another belief structure. If you're going to doubt God, well, you need to believe in something else. And usually the something else that you choose to believe in is within your control. Something that you can control. Because you can't control God. So you want to believe in something that you can control. Usually when you hear somebody say that God is irrational, it usually starts with them first saying, God is unreliable or God is undependable. I'm not saying this is true for everybody. I'm saying the, 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 the large amounts of people who doubt the existence of God start with God's not dependable or God's not reliable. What they really mean is this, God is not good. James knew this was coming for the church. He knew this. This is the reason why he was writing to the church. And that's why his opening message was, and we spent the last two weeks talking about this, is to persevere, to doubt your doubts. That's what he starts out chapter 1 with. Many of us, we know how to doubt beliefs. That's how we've been trained up. This is the age of skepticism we live in. So you've learned to doubt your beliefs. Very few of us have learned to doubt our doubts. Very few of us have learned to use our doubts. And here's what uh, pastor and author Tim Keller says about doubts. I think I've got the quote up here. It says that a faith, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. What Keller is saying is this, is that doubt can actually be a tool to help strengthen your faith. If you're courageous enough to think through your doubts, to persevere through your doubts, then it can actually strengthen your faith. Let me say this, Trinity Life Church, our hope is that it's a place where if you're a believer, if you're a checking things out kind of person, or if you're a doubter, that you can feel comfortable in the church. That's what we hope that Trinity Life can be for you. So here's the main point. I'll lose some of you guys throughout the time. That's okay. But here's the main point. We'll come back to this. Don't fret when you doubt. Don't fret when you doubt. Perseverance through doubt is indeed faith at work. When you're doubting but you're persevering, guess what? Your faith is at work. Make sense? All right. And so this morning we're going to look at two reasons from James that stir up doubt and then one reason that helps us to persevere through doubt. All right. So first, number one, doubt creeps in when there is loss. This is what James says in 9 through 11. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man. Will also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what's happened here? Well, some believers lost. They lost. Uh, they lost their material goods. They lost their status in society. James uses the word lowly in humiliation to describe those whose faith is being tested because they lost things. The popular society looked at them with pity, with disdain, all right? Oftentimes, doubt says to us, um, I don't want to be associated with faith because it looks like the faith team is losing. They're irrelevant. They're naive, old-fashioned. They're nerdy. They're behind the times. I don't. I want to be associated with the winning team. I want to look sophisticated, right? And at times, Christianity it does look like the losing team. It does. Who wants to lose? And James acknowledges this. And so, but instead of using the language of winning and losing, he uses the language of rich and poor. He's saying something very significant here, though. He's saying that winning isn't what you think it is, and rich isn't really what you think it is. You see, deeply rooted inside of us, there's something that wants to look smart, elite, winning, and rich. I just named the candidate for most of you girls of the guy that you want to marry, right? <laughs> like something inside of us, we want to be winning and rich and elite and, 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 and wealthy. No one likes to lose. We just put up with it, all right? And many doubters perhaps give up on God, not because it's irrational to believe in God, but because believing has real ramifications for how we define winning. If you believe in God, it changes the way that you think about winning. And frankly, many of us have too much to lose to believe. And this is true. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Mark tells the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. A wealthy man, he's young, he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? What do I, like, what do I need to do? And so Jesus checks out his morality. Have you, you know, do you love your parents? Have you given money to the synagogue? Have you done all these things? He says, I've been doing all these things since I was a kid. He was expecting Jesus to pat him on the shoulder. Very religious kid, right? But Jesus in this passage perceives his heart. And Jesus actually pinpoints the very thing that will become a stumbling block should he choose to follow Jesus. And this is what Mark writes. And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Notice his response. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possession. Let me highlight the fact that first of all, Jesus loved him. All right. Uh, Jesus wasn't being strict. Jesus didn't hate money. But also, Jesus wasn't giving five steps to easy believism, right? Pray this prayer, do this trick. Jesus pinpoints the very thing that's guaranteed to later cause the young man to doubt the goodness of God. And that's this, that he had a terrible definition of winning. He had a terrible de definition of riches. 
Jesus is saying here the same thing that James is saying. That if you think you can have it all by the world's standard and be flexible enough to follow God's will, you're fooling yourself. If you can have it all and be flexible enough to follow God wherever He wants to take you, you're fooling yourself. If you, if you embark on this journey and think that you can have it all, you're going to hate following Jesus. It's a matter of time that when you lose, you'll doubt. Here's the rule of James and his older brother Jesus. The rule is this, in the short term, you will lose. Persevere till the end. Let me give it to you up front. For those of you guys who are checking Jesus out or checking the church out, I don't want to discourage you. But there comes a point in your faith where you will feel like you're losing. Jesus and James are saying, take it to the end. Endure it to the end. Have you lost yet? No. Just wait. You will. Has the sun risen on you, as James says, to burn away the fluff? of your life. God sends the sun as a refiner's fire to burn away the facade of the consumeristic side of our faith. The sun burns away that facade. It goes away. The easy believism, when trials come, it burns that all away. But it leaves behind a real faith, a true faith, a golden faith. Go for the gold. Go for the gold. When a house burns up and all the nice, expensive things disappear, all right, when you doubt, this is what happens. You look and you're like, ah, I lost so many beautiful things in my life. I know a family who tragically, who their house burned up. I grew up in Detroit. Half of the houses on my block were burned up on Devil's Night. In doubt, you look and you say, oh, I lost all these great things that I had. But in perseverance and faith, after the flames, when everything is gone, guess what you see when you persevere? You see the foundation that your house is built on. When the flames come, when the sun comes to scorch away the facade of the fluff of our life, if you stand firm in faith, then you can say with James, as he did in, in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all as joy. Count it all as joy. Secondly, doubt creeps in when we choose sin. And it almost seems kind of obvious, but maybe we have to elaborate on that. That doubt begins to creep in when we actually choose, when we side with our sin. And this is what James writes uh, in, in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I've often said uh, that uh, uh, faith is not the opposite of doubt. Uh, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Disobedience is. For those of you guys who have struggled with doubt for a large portion of your Christian life, 
and you wonder if you're letting God down. I, I hope that at least that statement will help you, that doubt is not the opposite of faith, but if you choose disobedience, you're acting against faith. Each time I choose to act in disobedience, I am choosing not to believe. Notice the pro- progression that James is using here. He says, our temptation comes from an, an internal desire that's in conflict with God. It's alluring. It's enticing. It's seductive. It makes God look less enticing. So God actually looks restrictive. God looks ridiculous. God looks like a nuisance. And then here's the thought that sin poses. This is what happens when we like side with the side of sin. This is the thought that enters our mind. Why would God give me desires and then restrict me? He mustn't be good. So the quintessential rejection of God is found in verse 13. And it's not that the devil made me do it. Verse 13 says, God made me do it. God, you made me do it. Right? I'm being tempted by God. He put these sexual desires inside of me. How can, how can he expect me not to act on them? If he's in control, why is my situation falling apart? I would act better if he were to change the way that I felt. He needs to fix me. He mustn't be good. Now, many of us who grew up in church, you you would never say that God isn't good. You'd never say that. If I said to you, hey, man, God is good, guess what you would say? All the time. (laughs) If you grew up in that kind of church. But deep down in our hearts, when we don't get the job or when things seem to delay, I don't know about you, but I said, God, it's hard for me to trust your hand. It's hard for me to trust your goodness. He mustn't be good. If God isn't good, then I have every reason to choose my own actions. And this is how we know that rejecting God isn't just an intellectual objection. It's a moral objection. God, you're not good. I'll do my own thing. That's not intellectual. If my son said that to me, Dad, you're not good to me. I'm doing my own thing. That's not because he's unintellectual towards me. It's because he has a moral objection against my authority over his life. John W. Loftus, um, I was reading uh, his biography in his blog. He's a vocal atheist. Uh, He has a very intriguing story, actually. He was a former pastor, apologist for 20 years, and then he experienced a deconversion. And he wrote a blog called, What Would Convince Me Christianity is Real? He outlines five things that would convince him again. He says, number one, scientific evidence, uh, biblical evidence, prophetic evidence, present-day evidence, and then evidence for Jesus' specific resurrection. And he concludes his blog with this. He says, now, I wouldn't require all of this to believe. I can't say how much of this I might need to believe, but I certainly need some of it. If it would offered, I'd believe. However, if I was convinced Christianity is true and Jesus rose from the grave, and if I must believe in such a barbaric God, I would believe, yes. But I could still not worship such a barbaric God. I would fear such a supreme being since he was such a great power, but I'd still view him as a thug 
a despicable tyrant, a devil in disguise, unless Christianity was revived. It's one thing to have intellectual doubts. It's one thing to doubt because of the hypocrisy of the people around you. It's another thing to shake your fist at God just because you don't like the way he does things. The idea of sin is not that you behave badly, but it's that your heart is turned away from God. You realize that, right? God doesn't sit and tally up all the bad behaviors that you've done. He looks at your heart. Sin is just that your heart is turned away from God. We all shake our fists at God sometimes. We all do. Some of us are more polite about it. I'm an American, so I'm more likely to go, Oh, God! Canadians may be a bit more polite about it. But you know, a, a no thank you is as much a rejection as a get out of my face. James talks about how sin leads to death. And doubt is a kind of death. Doubt isn't evil. It's not evil necessarily. But doubt in itself has no resolve. Doubt in its, To live in doubt is no life. It's limbo. James says, don't be a double-minded man. It's indecision to live in doubt. Uh, postmodern philosophers are helpful in helping us to like deconstruct the like traditions of our lives and the institutions. But what they haven't helped us learn how to do is to, adopt, to stop deconstructing meaning. Because what happens is if, if you just keep deconstructing and keep doubting and you keep doubting, eventually doubts begin to deconstruct itself and you don't believe in anything at all. You deconstruct yourself. That's why many philosophers commit suicide, unfortunately. Deconstruction that deconstructs deconstruction is death. Doubt that doubts, that doubts, that doubts, that doubts, that doubts is death. So what brings life? What brings life in particular to the kind of doubt that stems from sin, from being enemies of God? Romans 5.10 says this. So rich in one sentence. So rich. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see, what the Bible is saying is this, that even as an enemy, through Jesus' death and resurrection, God welcomes you in as a friend. He gives life for death. He gives faith for disobedience. He gives you belief for doubts. He saw you shaking your fist at him. And in Christ, he opens up your hand and he pulls you out of your sin. Uh, in the Shawshank Redemption, it's a great movie. Uh, Red, who is played by Morgan Freeman, was so afraid of getting out of prison because he spent most of his life in Shawshank. Seen this movie? I'm going to ruin it for you. So uh, just to let you know. That's all he knew. He spent practically half, uh, all of his life in Shawshank. 
he was doubtful that the life on the outside had meaning for him. He was doubtful that he could survive life outside of Shawshank. His friend Andy uh, was wrongfully jailed, but patiently served his time. But he escaped. He escaped from prison to prepare a place for himself and for Red to spend the rest of the years in freedom. And so when Red was set free, Red was very doubtful that there was any value in his freedom. He remembered that Andy was waiting for him. So eventually he made his way to Andy, and he embraced his freedom. And his words at the end of of the movie are, are just right here. Andy, or Red says, fear can hold you prisoner, but hope can set you free. You see, Andy, who was wrongly accused for a crime that served it out patiently, but provided a way out, that hope is really what set Andy free, or set Red free. It wasn't the fact that he, he, he left Shawshank. It's the fact that Andy kept living this hope for Red. And so Red went back and he found Andy. And he lived in this place of freedom beyond fear, beyond doubt. Don't you want freedom from fear and doubt? I I don't think that we're all convinced, those of us who are believers, I don't think that we're always convinced God is good. That He is on your side. That every circumstance that you are experiencing, from the hard ones to the best ones, that God has designed all of these experiences for your good. I don't know if I'm convinced at times that everything that happens in my life is a good gift that has been designed by God, my Father who knows everything, all the details in my life, that He has designed all these things perfectly for you. And the pain associated with it sucks for a while. But in the end, if you persevere, is gold. I don't know if I want the freedom enough to step outside of my prison of sin. James is saying, step outside of that. It only leads to death. It only leads to death. There's no life inciting with sin. There's no life in that. The, the only way to persevere through doubts, like the only way you can really get through your doubts, is to believe that God is good. And it sounds so simplistic. God is good? All the time. All the time? It sounds so simplistic. But you and I know that it's, it's hard. It's a hard reality. James writes, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom, with whom, we just sang these lines, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What makes a good gift good is not the gift, but it's the giver of the gift and the reason why he or she gives the gift 
That's what makes it good. If you establish that God is good, then you eliminate a lot of the reason for doubt. Come back to the basics that God is good. That eliminates a lot of your reasons for doubt. All right. Use the goodness of God as a hermeneutic to read the Bible in life situations. What do I mean by that? Well, if you assume that God is not good, then of course when there's loss or when you sin, eventually you'll doubt God. Because would you have let that happen if you were good? All right. But if you assume that God is good, that when loss happens and when you choose sin, you realize this, that if you believe that God is good, you realize this, that there is grace that's waiting for you. God is waiting for you with grace, with forgiveness. That even in the lost, it is, He's actually forming something even better for you. That there's gold at the end of the race. That there's forgiveness at the end of your sin. God is a patient Father who can stomach the doubts of His children. He can put up with your doubts. In fact, He uses doubt as a gift in many ways. Personally for me, I'm going to give you three areas of application in my life that God used my doubts in perseverance, okay? So, I tend to be a person who is more skeptical by nature. Like, uh, I don't, you probably don't observe me, but I'm right up front when I'm worshiping and I'm all like, ah, like this, full on, like, and I, like, that's my posture because I want to really meet with God and I really, really just, like, all of me. Even if I don't feel it, all of me, I just want to just physically put myself in that posture to receive from God. Right? And it's not because I'm overly, overly like, uh, you know, emotionally like, you know, overwhelmed by God. But there's a part of me that just says, God, I, I don't know if you're here, but if you are here, then I'm going to try to get all of you as much as possible. There's a part of me that by nature, I'm a skeptic. And there's three areas in particular that I've been skeptical about. Maybe you can relate. Grown up as a kid, uh, science always made me skeptical about God. Right? And so uh, only, <laughs> only a few naive people would say that science has disproved God. I don't think any real serious person actually says that. But right, for me, science, science really made me struggle intellectually with God. And through some perseverance, and I can't share it all, but like I just realized this, that in the perseverance, that through science, not despite science, but through science, I discovered the intellect and the creativity of God creator. I discovered that it's a big deal. The Bible says that Jesus is Logos, that he's the mind behind the universe. I discovered it's a big deal. When Genesis says that, Jesus, that God spoke things into being, the science actually began to give me language to understand some of the things that the Bible talks about. Secondly, is in the area of hypocrisy, right? Um, I'm like, you know, like I hate it when I see hypocrisy and, you know, it's enough for me to, to turn me off. And I re discovered this in my perseverance with the hypocrisy is, number one, I'm the biggest hypocrite that I know. Uh, but number two, that there's beauty in the broken body of the church. That if I persevere long enough, that I learn to love the way that Christ loves the church, not the way a stingy person, selfish person loves the church. I learned to forgive more. 
I learned to be healed from my hurts when I persevered. I learned to ask forgiveness from other people. Thirdly is uh, I misunderstood God. I had him in a box. This is how God operates. And so when God didn't meet that criteria, that mold, I would doubt. And through perseverance, I understand that the nature of God, I couldn't mind even if I had five lifetimes. I discovered a few things. Number one, he's faithful. God is always faithful. He has no variation. He has no shadow of turning. God is constant. In faith, doubt is not an enemy. Doubt is a tool to be used. It's actually in doubt that we discover that faith, faith is a gift. Faith isn't earned. Faith is not dependent on your intellect or your capacity. You can be a child and believe, or you can be a rocket scientist and believe, because faith is not dependent on your intellect or capacity. Faith is a gift. I read something by Mark Galley. He edits Christianity Today. And he wrote that doubters and non-doubters, we actually share the same faith. He helped me understand that those of us who are intellectually minded, we attempt to justify ourselves by our intelligence by using doubts. Like that's how we justify ourselves. So if we're having this conversation, you're saying all these exciting things. Like I feel smarter when I say, really though? Like did that, did that really happen? It makes me feel smarter to doubt you. And so he says, for those who are intellectually minded, we use doubt to justify ourselves. That's me. Guess what? I need to be humble. But he also says that those of you uh, who live a life of doubtless faith, who just believe, and you're like Linda. Linda just believes. She's got a childlike faith. She just believes. That you might justify yourself because the Bible makes faith central, and you've got it. Like you're that kind of Christian. You're a biblical Christian. You pity people like us. <laughs> you look at us and say, just snap out of it. Just believe. You pity us. But this assumes that faith is a, is a product of willpower. That you just muster it up and up. I don't know if I look weird. I felt like a, <laughs> a munchkin. If you just muster up enough faith that you would believe, that assumes that faith is a matter of willpower. But if we're honest with ourselves, if you're honest with yourselves, everything seems to suggest otherwise. Like, how could I not see the evil in history, see what's happening on the other side of the world? How can I not look at that stuff and for a second think, God, are you really good? Those who believe that God is good in the midst of evil, there's only two explanations. That we believe because there is something psychologically wrong with us. Or we can only believe because faith is a gift. If faith is a gift, it's something that we can't take credit for. If faith is a gift, it's something that you can't force onto somebody else. 
You can only invite them in. You can only share it, but you can never force. Faith isn't something that you earn or conjure up. Faith is what James calls the perfect gift that's given to you from the Father of illumination. That's the literal translation of Father of lights. Faith is a gift from the one who illuminates all. Let me challenge you this morning. If faith is a gift, if you're a doubter, would you receive it? Would you receive faith that God's given to you this morning? You're a believer. And you've received this gift of faith. Would you extend it? Would you invite people to it? Would you talk about it? It's the best gift that our Father of illumination, our Father of lights, could ever give to us. It's one that we're meant to steward, one that we're meant to enjoy, and one that we're meant to invite others into.